Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. In today's social media world, the number of followers you have determines whether you earn the unofficial title of being a social media influencer. Did you know that former president, as excuse me, as of this recording, former president Barack Obama has the most popular Twitter account with 121 million followers. And Portuguese soccer player Cristiano Ronaldo has the most popular Instagram account with 230 million followers. Now, does that mean that President Obama and Ronaldo actually know millions of people? Of course not. Or does it mean that these millions of followers will do what Obama and Ronaldo say? Of course not. Following celebrities actually existed long before social media was invented. In fact, it was common during Jesus' earthly ministry. Over the next few minutes, I'd like to try to answer the question, what's the difference between being a fan, a follower, and a leader for Jesus? But before I do, let's pause and ask the Lord to help us understand His Word in prayer. Would you join me? Heavenly Father, thank You for inviting us into Your in your word, to cast our burdens upon you. Lord, would you please help anyone listening to or watching this podcast to place their burdens on you so that they can hear what you have to say today. And Father, would you please uh, use your word to help us see ourselves and others the way you do. And Lord, would you please correct any unbiblical thinking we may have about the Christian faith before our time is done today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. We're continuing uh, our series in the Gospel of Mark that I'm calling The Obedient Servant. Now, uh, as you turn there, here's just a little bit of context of what we've learned so far. Uh, Over the past couple of weeks in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen the fascination and hatred towards Jesus reach a fever pitch. Uh, In chapters 2 and 3, we see Jesus becoming a celebrity, but he also makes it on the hit list for the Pharisees and the Herodians. We saw uh, a couple weeks ago in chapter 3, verse 6, that they want to kill Jesus now. He was adored by his fans, and yet despised by his enemies. Uh, With that, follow along with me as I read the first few verses in the passage today. Mark chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 19. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea. And 
Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan, from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Let's keep reading here. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Well, here's the first point on your outline. There, there, there are three groups of people talked about here in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 19 that I'd like to bring to your attention. And the first group is this. Fans like what Jesus can do for them. Fans like what Jesus can do for them. Notice, you'll notice in the text where it says in verse 7, there was a great crowd that followed them. One of the many keys that can help us accurately interpret the scriptures is to look for repeated terms. And one particular term I'd like you to notice that's repeated in Mark's gospel is crowd or crowds. Mark mentions the crowds that followed Jesus around 32 times in his gospel or in 12 out of the 16 chapters. These crowds did have an impact on Jesus' ministry. For example, in chapter 2, they made it difficult for the paralytic to reach Jesus, so much so that four of his friends had to take him up to the roof of the house where Jesus was teaching and then dug a hole in the roof and lowered him down. And we see it also in chapter 3, where these crowds made it impossible for Jesus' own family to reach him. Now, if you can recall the kind of crowds that we've seen stalk pop stars such as the Beatles and Justin Bieber and Taylor Swift or Beyonce, you'll have a pretty good idea of what Jesus was dealing with. Now, Mark subtly tells us two things about the fans who were following Jesus around the Sea of Galilee. And here's letter A and B on your outline. First of all, letter A, uh, they know about Jesus but they don't know him. The crowds that were following the Lord knew about him. They had heard of him. They had heard of his work and his miracles, but they didn't know him personally. Uh, there's a key that tells us this in verse 8. It says that the crowds heard all that he was doing. This is an important detail to notice because of what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that they were following Jesus in order to hear his message or because they had repented and believed in him. In fact, Jesus had already said in chapter 1, verse 38, that the primary purpose of his ministry was to proclaim the gospel. But they weren't interested in that. They just wanted Jesus to do something for them. Now, there is a huge, huge difference between those who know about Jesus versus those who know him. It's similar to, say, the difference between basketball star LeBron James's son saying, I know him because he's my dad and I live with him, versus a security guard outside the locker room who gives LeBron a fist bump after each home game 
saying, yeah, I know LeBron, he's my buddy, he's my man, me and him are tight. Obviously, the difference between those two people is not only proximity, but also relationship. The danger of knowing about Jesus, having kind of a head knowledge, or what some scholars call intellectual assent, is that having is having that relationship with him, it, it, it basically is best explained by Jesus himself. Not having a relationship, but having head knowledge is best explained by Jesus himself. That's what I meant to say. Now, he says this near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where he says this to his hearers, his listeners. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name or cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So as you can see, uh, it's really, really important to know Jesus personally versus just knowing about him mentally, knowing who he was or just sort of being vaguely familiar with his story. Jesus makes it clear in Matthew chapter 7 that a superficial, outward profession of faith did not count as knowing him. It does not count as having a relationship with him. The proof that someone actually does know him and have a relationship with him is in a changed life and a desire to do the will of God as it's revealed in the scriptures. Now, if you have not yet, or you are not sure whether you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ alone for your eternal salvation, I would love to speak with you so that you can know for sure. Well, let's pause the video and I'd like you to talk about this discussion question for a moment. What do fans look like in churches today? And they do exist in every church. What do they look like? What do fans do and what do they not do? Talk about that for a moment and I'll be right back. Well, I'm sure you came up with some good ideas. I'm going to answer this question in just a couple of minutes, so stay tuned. Here's the second characteristic of Jesus fans. This is letter B on your outline. They want the benefits of being around him without the cost of following him. They want the benefits of being around him without the cost of following him. Uh, we see in, in chapter 3, verse 10, that Jesus had healed many, so much so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Now, a close examination of all the gospel accounts reveals there were most likely hundreds of people who were healed by Jesus, but few who actually chose to have a relationship with him. In other words, they wanted what Jesus could give them, but they didn't want Jesus himself. As long as Jesus was popular, doing miracles and speaking words of encouragement, the crowds loved him. 
I can just imagine them shouting like a bunch of fans at a, at a football game, you know, Jesus, Jesus, as, as Jesus made his way from town to town. However, as soon as he shared a difficult message or it became dangerous or unpopular to follow him, those same crowds were the ones who shouted, crucify him, crucify him when he was on trial before Pilate. One example of the crowds walking away from Jesus can be seen in John chapter 6. After Jesus had performed a bread miracle, he tells the crowd following him that he is the bread of life. He then uses a figure of speech to explain how he will sacrifice his own flesh and blood so that those who believe in him can have eternal life. However, the Jews and others listening mistook him for saying they would have to literally eat his flesh, which he was saying, I'm the bread of life, and drink his blood, meaning the cup. After hearing this, many in the crowd walked away saying, you know, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to this stuff? Then Jesus turned to the 12 apostles and he asked them, do you want to go away as well? I mean, wow, just imagine what that would have been like. It was as if, it, as if he was saying, look, following me isn't easy, but I'm also not going to lower the bar to make it easier. Well, in modern times, fans will hang around the church because they may like the relationships that the church provides for them. They may like the morals of the church or how it feels to serve others. They, they may like the generosity or political views of the church. However, as soon as they hear a sermon they don't like, or they are challenged in their faith, or they are confronted about their sin, or required to submit to church leadership, or something else difficult, they walk away. Now, being a fan of Jesus does not make you a follower of Jesus. That's what I really want you to get out of this text. And speaking of the text, let's look back at it together again and follow along with me, please, as I read verse 13. And so he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Okay, here's number two on your outline, and that is followers love who Jesus is. Followers love who Jesus is. Uh, or another way I could maybe say it is they love Jesus for who he is. I could maybe phrase it that way. In other words, they want more than what Jesus can do for them. They want a close relationship with Jesus himself because they know that is so much better. We see this in verse 13 where it says, He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. This is just one of many proofs that those who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ did not choose him, but rather they were chosen by him. Jesus repeats this truth in John 6, 44, where he says, No one can come to, the, come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's him 
talking about the necessary work of the Father, sending the Spirit to work in the sinner's heart to woo them to faith in Christ because they cannot choose Christ on their own because their, their hearts are too hardened by sin. Now, evidence of this great work of God we call repentance and regeneration is further seen at the end of verse 13, where Mark says they came to him. John reinforces this in his gospel when he writes that being born again is not by man's will, but by God's. It's in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. He repeats this concept again later when he quotes Jesus as saying that saving faith in the heart of a sinner is a work of God. That's in John chapter 6, verses 28 to 29. So, to be a follower of Christ is to be a disciple of Christ. The Greek word for disciple, mathetes, it's used in the Gospels to simply mean pupil or learner. Now, listen closely to what I'm about to say because I don't want you to get confused. And here it is. In the Gospels... Not all disciples are believers, but all believers are called to be disciples. And what I mean is that the term disciple was used interchangeably in the Gospels to refer to the 12 apostles, those who had a personal relationship with Jesus, and those who were just part of the crowd. Now, why is this? Well, one reason is because in first century Jewish culture, rabbis also referred to their students as disciples. However, there's a big difference between how rabbis acquired their students and how Jesus did. It was tradition for a Jewish rabbi, excuse me, a Jewish disciple, to choose the rabbi he wanted to study under, much like in today's world where a student chooses which college he wants to attend. On the other hand, Jesus chose his disciples instead of them choosing him. Now, to be a disciple of Christ means that you renounce your old life of sin and rebellion in order to commit to a new life of following Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The true disciple feels indebted to Jesus because he paid a debt he didn't owe so he or she could receive a life they do not deserve. Contrary to fans who want to get what they can from Jesus, followers give themselves to Jesus because they recognize he gave all of himself for them. They love Jesus as a person because He is the Savior who first loved them by dying on the cross for their sin. Well, let's pause the video again, and I'd like you to talk about this next discussion question. And that is, first, I need you to read, turn your Bibles to, and read Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33. And after you do that, answer these questions. What does Jesus say we must do in order to be his disciples? And then think of some specific examples of what this would look like. So, read Luke 14, and then talk about the discussion question, and I'll be right back.
Now, in verse 26 of Luke 14, just to clarify here, Jesus is not saying we literally have to hate our own family. Instead, he was using hyperbole, or uh, it's, a, it's a form of exaggeration, to make this simple point. I must be your first love. You must love me even more than your family. Now, he refers to a cross in verse 27 of Luke 14 because it was the tool the Roman Empire used to put criminals to death. It was a, it was a symbol of death, much like a, an electric chair or a gas chamber would be today. And so when Jesus says we must pick up our cross and follow him, he means the old life before Christ needs to die and our new life in Christ will be difficult, but it'll be worth it. Now, if you would, look back at the text one last time as I read Mark chapter 3, verses 14 and 19. It says, And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boronergies, excuse me, hard to say that, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. All right, here's uh, number three on your outline, the third point, the third group that we see in this passage, and that is leaders lead how Jesus led. Leaders lead how Jesus led. You've heard me say earlier that there are three groups of people in this scripture passage. There are the fans, then there are followers, and now there are leaders. In this case, the leaders are the 12 apostles. I have found it helpful in my own mind to think of all three groups as concentric circles uh, in which the fans are the largest circle. Inside that is a, a medium-sized circle of followers, and then inside that circle is a smaller, more exclusive group, which would be leaders, or the apostles. And it says in verse 14 that he appointed the twelve. Luke confirms in his account of these events that the twelve were chosen out of the larger group of disciples or the larger group of believers that were following Jesus. And Luke articulates this by saying, quote, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve. That's in Luke chapter 6 verse 13. Now, the selection of 12, not 10, not 14, is significant because it represents the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus had a bigger plan in mind here, what he was doing when he started the church with the selection of these 12 men. Now, we are given two reasons Jesus chose these men to be leaders. The first is, letter A in your outline, they are called to walk closer with Jesus than followers do. They're called to walk closer with Jesus than followers do. Verse 14 says, Jesus chose them so that they might be with him. 
This refers to a deeper level of intimacy with Jesus. We know from the Gospel accounts that Jesus basically had three tiers of relationships during his early ministry. There were around 70 of committed followers. Then there were the 12 apostles. And then within the 12 apostles, there were three very special ones that he held close to him, Peter, James, and John. Now, the group one belonged to determined how close they were to Jesus and how much responsibility they had. In the larger arc of the entire Bible, we can see that those whom God called into spiritual leadership typically walked closer with him while being slightly removed from the people. We see this in the lives of Moses and David and Jesus himself, the apostles, and Paul. Just to name a few. Why is this? Well, I don't have time to go into great detail, but in short, I think it's because the responsibilities of spiritual leadership require a greater dependence on the Lord and a deeper intimacy with Him. Next, we see in letter B that He chose them also because they would be granted authority to go with the responsibility of their mission. They would be granted authority to go with the responsibility of their mission. That's letter B. We see here in verse 15 that the apostles would be sent out to preach and to cast out demons. Now, knowing the difficulty of this assignment, Jesus also granted them the authority to go along with that responsibility. You can just imagine how frustrating and maybe comical it would be if the disciples tried to cast out demons but had no authority to do so. We see in other places in the scriptures uh, this concept as well. For example, because the Lord has given husbands the responsibility of leading their families, He also gives them the authority to do so by calling them the head of the home. And because the Lord will hold church leaders accountable for the spiritual health of His church, He also grants them authority to discipline those who are doing harm to the church. Now, whether it be as a, an elder, a deacon, small group leader, or a team leader, being called by Jesus to be a leader in His church is the greatest privilege one can have on this side of eternity. Spiritual leadership is not only very rewarding, but also at times very costly. Spiritual leaders get to see God do and use them to do amazing things. But they also must make great sacrifices for the Lord. And thankfully, He sees that. He knows it. He keeps track of it, and He promises in His Word he will reward spiritual leaders for what they've done in His name. Well, let's talk applications. What do we do with this now that we've heard it? How are we supposed to change our behavior of thinking? I think the best application to start off with is a question. I want to urge you to consider this question, and that is, are you a fan, a follower, or leader for Jesus? I want to encourage you to do a little self-evaluation and then write your answer in the space provided on your outline, your handout worksheet that you printed off of our website. If the Lord has shown you that you are just a fan, then I want to urge you to repent of your sin 
and by faith surrender your life to Jesus Christ. By doing so, you'll be reconciled to God, have your sins forgiven, receive the gift of eternal life, and so much more. And if you've identified yourself as a follower, I want to encourage you to ask the Lord if He's calling you to be a leader. And it's okay if He's not. He doesn't call everyone to leadership because then we would have no followers. However, if you sense that He is, then ask Him what that looks like. And if you need some counsel, I'm always here to pray with you and to help you think through what the Lord might be doing in your life. I think it's clear, though, from the text, it's not good to be a fan. Instead, the Lord wants us to be followers, and He wants some followers to be leaders for Him. Okay, next, number two. The second application. Ask, I'd like you to ask this question. Do you know someone who is a fan or a leader for Jesus? I want to encourage you to write their names down, and whether they are a fan or a leader. If they're a fan, please commit to praying for their salvation and look for an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Pray that the Spirit would use the knowledge they have about Jesus to change their hearts so they can be reconciled to God through Jesus. And if the person you wrote down is a leader for Jesus, pray for their encouragement, for their protection from the adversary, and fruit in their ministry. Ask the Lord to reward them for the sacrifices they've made. So, I hope that today's study has not only grown your faith, but also your love for the Lord. If you're wanting to learn more about the message Jesus preached and what it means to follow Him, I want to encourage you to order a copy of a book called The Gospel According to Jesus by John MacArthur. In it, MacArthur answers many of the questions surrounding salvation, including what it means to be lost, what it means to be saved, what true faith looks like, and much more. It's a book that has helped me wrestle through some of the challenging concepts uh, related to the gospel. And the gospel according to Jesus, it's available at most online booksellers, so check it out. Well, uh, finally, this week's verse of encouragement comes from Psalm 31, verse 19. It's one of my my favorite psalms. This is where David writes, Oh, oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. Some Bible scholars call uh, Psalm 31.19 the Romans 8.28 of the Old Testament. This is because David paints a picture of a reservoir of blessings that are like a dam. uh, And they, they are accumulating behind this dam, building up so that in the Lord's timing, those blessings will eventually overflow the dam onto those who fear Him and take refuge in Him. And of course, in New Testament language, that would be those who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, this verse has encouraged me many times when I was struggling to hold on to hope. And so, I hope 
it encourages you as well. Well, thanks for tuning in and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you this week. I'll see you next time. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.